We stand in the presence of God's Word. The army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was confined in the court of the guard in the palace of the king of Judah. The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of your uncle, is going to come and say, Buy my field that is in Anathoth. Then my cousin came and said to me, Buy my field. Then I knew this was the word of the Lord. I bought the field, weighed out 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. In the presence of all the Judeans in the court of the guard, I charged Baruch, saying, Take these deeds and put them into an earthenware jar in order that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. This is the word of the Lord. If you've been in our church very long, you know that I tell a story of my first year of graduate school at SMU when an old physician working in the student health center uh, who heard me say that I was discouraged because I was running out of money uh, made a big manila folder chart for Gail and me. With his own hand and a ruler, he drew 24 squares going across this way for the next 24 months and enough lines going down for us to write everything we needed to spend money on every month. He sent us to the library on the campus at SMU to check out at least four home economics textbooks to go back and read the chapter in each book called Making a Family Budget. And that night we decided that we would work the plan that one cannot be generous if one gives what's left over. One has to put giving up at the top. One cannot ever save and invest if one saves only what's left over. There'll be none left over. You have to do that up top. And then you spend what's remaining according to percent. Your house payment or your rent should never be more than 30% of your take-home and so on. Guess what? Forty years later, every two years, I make us a new manila folder. I'm still writing in the little squares exactly what our electric bill was this month, what our gas bill was this month, uh, what we spent money on, so that we know where it's going. But we also have always taken seriously that part about give up front and save and invest up front. When I was graduated finally from all those years of college, we moved to Houston. I was making evangelism calls one night fellow turned out to be a stockbroker with one of the major brokerage firms. I asked him, would you teach me how to invest? He said, will you read a book? I said, I will. He gave me a book to read. The next Sunday morning, he asked, how are you coming? I said, I've read it. He asked me three or four questions. He thought I could, I showed evidence I'd read it. He said, would you read another book? I bring it to you next Sunday. I read a second book. I read a third book. Much of what I was reading said the markets in this country are generally driven by fear or greed. Warren Buffett has said, when everybody else is buying, I'm sitting on my money. When everybody else is afraid to reach for the telephone, I decide it's time to buy. The man helping Gail and me said, no, no, we're not going to do it that way. We're not going to talk about fear and greed. We're going to talk about how to build an endowment for you two to live on the rest of your lives. 
So when is the time for you to buy? When you have some money. And all these years, you know, when we moved to Beaumont, the bishop sent me there. He said, I have an 800 number. Call me. When the bishop sent me to Oklahoma, he said, I have an 800 number. Call me. And I still call him and say, Larry, you think the market's going up or the market's going down? He said, wait, wait. When do you buy stocks? And I said, when I have some money. Right. When you have some money. Because, he said, you and I are looking farther, we believe, in the future. If you have been watching the goings-on at the United Nations this week, you know that the Israelis are in a heap of trouble. They are surrounded by 250 million people who would like to drive them into the Mediterranean. But that's not a new situation for them. They've been there before, and sometimes they've lost in such situations. The text we've been dealing with all of this fall come from such a period. At that point, the biggest power in the Middle East, Syria, called Assyria in biblical times. They swept southward, devastated the ten northern tribes of Israel, raped, plundered, intermarried, deposed the people, sent in others to take over their vineyards, their watering holes. They ceased to exist as a separate people. In the year 645, before the coming of our Lord, Jeremiah was born at age 18, he believed God Almighty was sending him to the king of Judah, the two remaining tribes, and telling him, if our people do not reform seriously, the same fate will befall us that befell the northern tribes. By this time, Egypt was rattling sabers again in the south, and another power, forerunner of today's Iraqis, known in biblical times as Babylonia, had swept over the Assyrians and were the great threat on the northern borders. Jeremiah tried really hard for 40 years. For 40 years. From the time he was 18 until he was 58, he tried really hard. And by the time he was 58, the king had heard more than he wanted to hear, and he threw him in prison, in the prison adjoining the palace. But the enemy was at the gate. The Babylonians were surrounding the city. They were waiting for the people inside to run out of food and water and surrender or until they were too weak to fight and the Babylonians would simply breach the walls. We come to today's text. Jeremiah was in a heap of trouble. In prison, enemy surrounding the city where he was. You ever been in such a situation when you saw no good coming to you, only bad coming to you. Gail and I have been moviegoers most of our married lifetime, so for years I watched a television program called Siskel and Ebert. Gene Siskel was film critic for the Chicago Tribune, Roger Ebert for the Chicago Sun-Times, big competitors in Chicago. But PBS decided these guys were fun to watch, going at each other about movies, so for 23 years, they aired them every week, talking about movies to see, movies not to see. And then Gene Siskel died. And six years ago, Roger Ebert was found to have thyroid cancer. That's usually one of the more treatable ones. In his case, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And eventually, to try to save his life, his doctors had to remove all of his lower jaw, his larynx, so that he cannot chew, cannot swallow, cannot speak. 
Nothing wrong with his mind, nothing wrong with his hands. And so he can write and he can still type. And now he's written his autobiography. It's an interesting book. He was born in Urbana, Illinois, grew up there, of course loved the fighting Illini, so he went to college, University of Illinois, was graduated there, spent a year doing additional studies in Cape Town, South Africa, came back and was hired by the Chicago Sun-Times to be their film critic and became the first film critic in the history of the United States to win a Pulitzer Prize. But he also discovered a different culture from the one he'd ever known, these Chicago newsmen, and they were mostly men back in those days, when they'd get their column written for the day, they'd celebrate by going to the nearest bar and seeing who could drink the other one under the table. And it took only a few years till Roger Ebert was a serious alcoholic. At 37, he said, I discovered I was going to die or I was going to get well. And somebody took him to an AA meeting. He says, the greatest thing that ever happened to me at AA, they taught me that I had a problem I could not solve, but there is a higher power that if I would confess to this higher power, I have a problem I cannot solve and entrust as much of me as I, as I knew how to as much of him as I could comprehend, he would help me. Changed my life, he said. I haven't had a drink since 1979. I found when I had cancer. I needed to make that same daily contract I'd been making every day since 1979. Oh God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. I'm going to count on you to help me today not drink. Help me not drink today. Help me today to battle my disease. I cannot speak. I cannot chew. I cannot eat. Help me trust you today. And in all of this, he said, I learned something new I didn't know in 1979, that my job every day is to try to bring a little joy into the world. I believe it's your job too, he writes in his book, that all God's children are supposed to bring a little joy into a very troubled world. Number two. This was the word of the Lord, Jeremiah says. He's been saying it for 40 years, still saying it. Five times in this brief passage, the word of the Lord came to me, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, my cousin, came, said, I've got a piece of property I'd like for you to buy. I knew it was the word of the Lord. Didn't you wish you could be so sure that you were hearing the word of the Lord? that God was telling you to do something specific? Dr. James Gash is a professor at the law school at Pepperdine University in California. <clears throat> Pepperdine is a church-owned school, a church of Christ. <clears throat> you Sooner fans remember that Dr. Bonofsky left OU to go be president of Pepperdine many years ago. He teaches at the law school at Pepperdine. He said he had a colleague that he would run into in the faculty lounge, sometimes at lunchtime, who kept saying to him, we need to go to Africa. And I kept asking him, why do you think so? Well, because, he said, there are teenagers in almost every country that are improperly incarcerated for crimes they have not committed. 
The judicial system in some of those countries tends to be pretty good. The judges educated and trying to be fair. But there are not enough lawyers. There is no such thing as a public defender in many of those countries. And so these teenagers are accused by some constable out there in a nowhere place who puts these young men and women into a confinement and the young women are often sold out as prostitutes and the young men work for farmers nearby and the warden takes all the money. These kids are being taken out of school and improperly used. But the judges would render the right verdict if there were writs before them. He said, every time you would mission, I'd say, but i got a wife and kids myself. And then one night he begged me to go with him to a meeting where a fellow was going to talk. He'd been to Africa on such a trip several times. I was trying not to pay attention, but his summation got me. He ended by saying, our God is a God of justice and he's nuts about kids. Couldn't get it out of my mind. Our God is a God of justice and he's nuts about kids. So I asked my colleague the next day, what do I have to do? He said, we need to sign up for two weeks. Let's pick a time when we're not in class. Two weeks. So he said, we flew to Uganda. We went to the capital city. We went to the quarters of a judge. And he gave us 12 manila folders, 12 cases. And we went out a dusty road to a small town nearby where 18 teenage boys were confined. There were no screens There were no beds. There were no mosquito nets to keep the malaria-bearing mosquitoes from biting these kids. There was nobody there preparing food. There was no running water. There was no sanitation. It was unbelievable. But every day, these 18 teenage boys were hired out to the farmers around, and the constable was taking all the money. They'd been taken out of school. We found one of these young men named Henry. He gave us an English name. Henry, he said, that's who I am. And he could speak English, so he became our interpreter. And we worked through the other 11 cases, and we asked Henry, so why are you here, Henry? And he said, murder. Murder. This young man was so polite. He always said, sir, to us. Answered every question clearly. Murder. Well, he said there was a herdsman killed in a village nearby. Did you do this, Henry? No, he said. No, I was in school that day. Really? Has the headmaster ever been asked, were you in school? He said, I don't think so. And he said, I will ask him. And so Dr. Gash said, I went to that school and I asked the headmaster, you know a young man named Henry? Of course, he said. He's been confined for almost a year now. I ask, do you have a good attendance record? Of course, he said. I ask him, would you look up that specific day, that specific time? Was Henry in class? He turned the book around. He was in class. All I had to do was write it up, take it to the judge. All all action dismissed. Henry got to go back to school. I flew home but I've been back three times because I can't get those words out of my mind. Our God is a God of justice and he's nuts about kids. What is he telling you to do? Hmm? What?
Listen very carefully. He'll help you know. Number three, I bought the land. The Lord told me to. It was the word of the Lord. I bought the land. Now think about it, folks. Anathoth was a little village three miles from the gates of the city of Jerusalem. The Babylonians were already occupying the land. But Hanamel wants to sell it to Jeremiah. Jeremiah knows the Babylonians already have it. But God is telling him, buy the land. Buy the land. We've got to make a statement here, Jeremiah. So I called witnesses. We weighed out the silver and we seal the document. Dr. Fred Craddock wrote a story about some years ago when he was asked to give a lecture series at a major university. And he said one night he had finished the last presentation and was really tired when a group of these college kids, 10 or 12, said, Would you like to come to our prayer meeting we have this time every week? Now, how can a professor from a seminary, he said, say, no, I don't want to go to your prayer meetings. Oh, okay. And he said, I went to their prayer meeting. But these were kids of privilege. You could tell by looking at their clothes, they're looking at their jewelry, looking at their cars parked right outside. And they were having a really hard time thinking of anything they needed to ask God for. One boy prayed that he really did need some new luggage before summer vacation. And one girl prayed she really did need to know whether to buy that blue gown for the next ball or not. And one girl prayed there was a new boy in one of her classes that had never turned his head toward her, but she was asking God to cause him to turn his head and take a good look at her. And then, he said... They proceeded to write on little pieces of paper, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, put all of them in a box, and they passed the box around the circle. And one person would restate his or her prayer again, the other would draw out an answer, and that was God's answer. Yes, he would help you get luggage, no, no blue gown or whatever. Now they're ready to go back to their sorority houses, fraternity houses, and they ask if I had any closing remarks. And he said, I would have given probably a better answer the next day, but I was tired. And I said, it's a shame Jesus didn't know how to do it this way. <laughs> and one said, what do you mean? And he said, have you ever read that story about what happened at the Garden of Gethsemane that night? When Jesus prayed so hard that sweat drops like blood fell from his brow. You kids are having a picnic in the Mount of Olives at the Garden of Gethsemane. And I walked out. Can you buy the property? Not buy the property, even when it's a really tough thing to do. Number four. Well, we know that documents placed in earthenware jars did last a long time. Almost 2,000 years after the Essenes down at Qumran put their holy scriptures into earthen jars and pushed them way back into a cave to escape the Romans. We found them. They're called the Dead Sea Scrolls. 2,000 years they'd endured in earthenware jars. But of course, by the time the Babylonians had been defeated by forerunners of today's Iranians, the ancient Persians, and had let the Jews go home, 
Jeremiah had long since been dead. And he told us earlier in his book he had no children and no grandchildren. None of his family ever held title to the property. Just a piece of paper. But his people had been taught something important. God had not given up on Israel. Had not given up. He was sick of their behavior at times, but he hadn't given up on them. And there would be a new day. A new day in Judah. Dr. Ian McLaren was a great Scottish preacher. Went to University of Stirling. Went to Edinburgh for graduate school. And then to the famed German School of Theology at Tübingen. He was born way back in 1850. Back at the time, shortly before our great civil war here. Became a great Scottish Presbyterian preacher. Word spread about how outstanding he was. He was invited to come over to the United States just about the turn of the century. In fact, just before we got to 1900, Yale University invited him to give the Lyman Beecher Lectures on Preaching. That series has been around a long time, and only the best get invited to give that series. He told a story one time about a Scotsman. Old Mr. Campbell came to church every Sunday, loved to sit there by his beautiful wife and his equally beautiful daughter, Flora. And then his wife died. And he became cold, stern. Still in church with Flora by his side, cold, stern he was. Finally, after a couple of years, Flora felt she could take no more, and she slipped out of the house one night and ran away. Rumors came back to the little town that Flora had fallen in with fast-living folks in the big city, and old Mr. Campbell struck her name from the family Bible. The community knew it because the next Sunday he showed up at the Presbyterian church and told them he had struck her name from the family Bible and that he felt they should strike her name from the church membership. But wiser heads prevailed. They said they needed a little more information. They'd get back to him on that. And later that afternoon, a Mrs. Howe called on old Mr. Campbell. And she said, Sir, may I remind you of a story Jesus told one time? And in her own words, she told him the story of the prodigal son and how the father waited until he saw the boy coming and he ran and threw himself on his neck and kissed him. She said, I'm going to write to your Flora. And she wrote to her and said, your father's grieving. Deep in his heart, he's a good man. He's grieving hard even more since you've been gone. I think you'd find him different if you were to come back, Flora. It wasn't long after Mr. Campbell wrote in the family Bible. Flora went away in May, but she came back in December. And her father ran down the road and fell on her neck and kissed her. <laughs> 